This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. As you would be well aware, there are some serious bushfires burning in Western Australia today. There are a couple in the Shire of Manjimup. One is at emergency level and one is a watch and act. There's also another fire in the Mundaring Shire, which is at emergency level. So please keep listening to your local ABC radio. If you're in those areas, you will be updated shortly here on ABC WA. And also just after half past 12 today, Richard Hudson in the studio who go through all the details of those fires for you. And an update, of course, from the Bureau of Meteorology, just checking the conditions that the firefighters are dealing with this afternoon as they try and bring those fires under control. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Also today, we're going to catch up with the head of a new national research project that's trying to work out how to transition livestock production to a low methane emission future. You'll meet Phil Verco shortly here on the Country Hour. First up, though, the owner of a live export facility says the $50,000 fine imposed on an Indigenous association over the death of over 1,000 cattle in the Pilbara in 2019 makes a mockery of the state's animal welfare system. The Mugarinya Community Association, which manages Yandi Yarra Reserve near Port Hedland, had pleaded guilty to a charge of animal cruelty laid after the cattle died from thirst and starvation in January 2019. The Perth Magistrates Court was told the charge related to a total of 86 cattle, 15 of which had to be euthanised, which was a representative sample of what had happened on the station. Shortly, Deep Herd's Executive Director of Compliance and Operations, Bruno Metatesta, will be here to discuss the case. But first, Paul Brown is on the phone. He's a farmer and owner and manager at the Headland Export Depot. Paul, what do you make of the penalty for these cattle deaths? I think my reaction would be pretty similar to most of the agricultural industry and, and most of the general public. It's a pretty paltry fine for what would probably be Australia's biggest animal welfare disaster. The headlines say a thousand plus, but my understanding is it was 1,400 or 1,500 cattle that perished through neglect, you know, basically died of starvation and thirst. Terrible way to die uh, in, uh, in extreme conditions. And uh, I find it abhorrent that the Aboriginal Corporation, the leaders and the directors of that corporation have got away scot-free, basically. $50,000 fine does not reflect uh, the community standards and the expectations put on the agricultural industry when it comes to animal welfare. Why is it so important? You know, why do you feel so strongly about this particular case? I suppose because the agricultural industry as a whole and the broadacre and particularly the live export industry are put under such a microscope when it comes to animal welfare. And if you just go back a, a little way to the Awasi Express, which pales into insignificance against this, the directors of Emmanuel Exports were hounded in the, the press. The minister at the time, Alana McTiernan, were, were trying to make a pariah of the directors 
Uh, they were facing fines that were crippling and jail time. Here at Yandiara, and with the 1,500-odd cattle deaths, which equates to about 10 or 15,000 sheep, we find there's no personal responsibility by directors. They, they have got off without any punishment. They don't require, they weren't required to step down as directors. Uh, they've not been excluded as being part of a, a livestock program. And the $50,000 is pretty paltry. I mean, that's, uh, you know, if you look at the 1,000 cattle, uh, at $50, it works out at about $50 a head. So that's what animal welfare now is worth. And the, the animal welfare in Western Australia, as far as the judge is concerned, is worth $50 a head when it comes to cattle. Now, Paul, you make the comparison with the Awasi Express incident where 2,000 sheep died on board that voyage from Fremantle back in 2017 and uh, those sheep mainly dying due to heat stress. Uh, wouldn't you make the, the parallel with that particular case? Because those charges were dropped against, you know, the company and the two directors only uh, last month. So all charges dropped with the prosecutor saying that, you know, it's no longer in the public interest. So isn't that a direct kind of another example, I guess, of uh, well, those charges never seeing, you know, going to court basically? I mean, the difference well, in this case is that all pleaded not guilty in that was the express example. And the case wasn't carried forward because there was no hope of prosecution, because there was no prosecution uh, to be had. That was the decision of the DPP, that there was no viable prosecution there. Here we have a prosecution that was wound down to its base level. It could have been uh, a prosecution that highlighted the, the concerns of animal welfare, the standards which are required. And let's not forget, on the back of the Awasi Express, you know, the industry has had seismic change. The, the, you know, the livestock industry, particularly the sheep export industry, has taken on a massive leap in the requirements that uh, are put on exporters and put, put on the industry as a whole. Here in the example at Yandia, nothing has changed. In fact, uh, the, the decision says that there, there was nothing to see here. It was only a $50,000 fine for something like a thousand to fifteen hundred cattle, you know, directors weren't held responsible. And what is also alarming is that this, as I said the, previously, the the Wasi Express in pure numbers pales into insignificance here because the a thousand or fifteen hundred uh, cattle is equivalent to ten or fifteen thousand sheep. And we have the largest animal welfare. So how do you work that out in Australia? And we uh, the silence from the animal welfare lobby. Where's Animals Australia? Where's Jed Goodfellow? Where's Bitter Jones? Where's the RSPCA? They, if, if this was the livestock export industry having it, they would be out rattling their sabres and banging their donation tins to make sure, and, and, and banging down the doors of MPs and government ministers to make sure that the industry was crippled and never recovered. But here, silence, absolute silence from the Animal Welfare Brigade. And Paul, how do you make that uh, equation that... You know, 1,500 cattle equals, what did you say, 15,000 sheep? How do you oh, work that about, out? Yeah, roughly, roughly 10 sheep to the cattle uh, is, you know, if, essentially, you know, if you look at weight and size uh, and demand on, on, on feed. Yeah, so, but, but purely head-to-head, yeah. head, it's about 1,500, you're saying, for the cattle, but 2,000 sheep died on board the Aussie Express. But a, a cattle equivalent to, to the sheep would be about a 10 to 1 
you know. Mm. So that's the that's the equivalent that I'm working on. So and, what, what would uh, you nonetheless, have nonetheless, liked school, to have seen then? What what animal did... welfare issue that's happened in Australia on mm. Australian shores? So what what is the appropriate penalty then? Do you think? Well, I think the appropriate penalty should be. Uh, well, I, I think the DPERD, the department and the minister, and through the DPP should be a, appealing the penalty. I think you know the, the causes of this saying, oh well, they didn't go, to, they didn't want to go to trial, they pled guilty. Uh, that doesn't wash as far as I'm concerned. The DPP and the department should appeal this decision and ask for a much more substantial penalty to reflect the community's concern when it comes to animal welfare. Mm, such as what, what sort of penalty? WA, that would be under the, well, I, I think for a corporation, it should be in the millions. If this happened at any other organisation, if it happened at my feedlot in Port Hedland, if it happened at the sale yards, if it happened on a, on a, a corporate farm, the directors would be, pay, would be facing personal responsibility and liability, crippling fines, and the corporation would uh, would not be allowed to uh, operate uh, livestock again. And uh, I think that uh, the fines in this uh, instance make a mockery of the animal welfare uh, system that we have in place. And what message does it send? Well, it sends the, uh, the message that, that you can get away with this sort of stuff. It was as if the people that were involved were treated like they were a special case and that they, they were absolved of any responsibility. Paul, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Paul Brown is the owner and manager of the Headland Export Depot. 14 past 12. Well, DPIRD's Executive Director of Operations and Compliance is Bruno Mezzatesta. Bruno, Paul Brown says this $50,000 penalty makes a mockery of the state's animal welfare system. Do you agree? Does it make a mockery of the system? I think I think the decision of the magistrate, and it is a decision of the magistrate to impose penalties, that included a monetary penalty and also an order under the Animal Welfare Act that the operations of the community are subject to some supervision for the next two years is appropriate. So Paul says it's a, a poultry fine for Australia's biggest animal welfare disaster. And he's suggesting that the decision should be appealed and a more appropriate fine, maybe in the millions of dollars to be ap- applied. Is an appeal possible? A- appeals are possible. But uh, as I said in my earlier comment, I think based on the information we have, we don't have any reason to appeal the decision of the magistrate. Again, the magistrate makes the decision of the appropriate penalty, not not the not the agency. But you're not disappointed with it. You support the penalty. Well, we think, I think it achieves what we're seeking to achieve when we go down the path of prosecution, and that is provide deterrent to um, the individuals who have perhaps not acted in the way that's expected under our animal welfare legislation, but more generally sends a message to the broader community that where uh, animals aren't cared for in the way that's expected, that as as a department we will be uh, responding and taking the matters to court and allowing a magistrate to make the decision with respect to penalties. Paul also stated that members of the association board weren't required to step down as directors and were not excluded to be part of a livestock program following the incident. Is that correct? That 
is correct, but what we have got is a court-imposed order that will require the community to appoint an appropriate livestock advisor and to provide a management plan to the satisfaction of the department and to provide reports on a six-monthly basis to the department of how they are performing against that management plan. So how appropriate is that then, that the, the same people in charge at the station today as they were back in 2019 when these cattle died of thirst and starvation? Well, as I've mentioned earlier, the, the, for the next two years, the community will be subject to supervision by an independent livestock advisor who will need to provide management plans and reports to the department. And you're happy with that? I, I think it achieves the right balance of getting animal welfare uh, considerations front and centre in anyone managing animals. Another point that was raised was that following the Awasi Express incident, when 2,000 sheep died of heat stress on a voyage from Fremantle to the Middle East, the live export industry went all, through all sorts of legislative changes to improve conditions for the sheep. There was the a mid-year moratorium on voyages to avoid that northern hemisphere heat, density restrictions on board, independent inspectors, the list goes on and on. What changes in comparison to that are being put in place at Yandi Yarra following the deaths of over a thousand cattle. As you said, there is some supervision there, but it seems much less than the legislation put in place following the Awasi Express incident. Uh, I, I don't think it's a useful thing to compare uh, the circumstances of live, the live export uh, industry and these incidents on one station in the north of the state, I don't think that's a useful comparison. Why not? Every, every, well, every incident turns on its own facts and circumstances. So, I mean, it's not a useful exercise to go and do that compare and contrast because they all operate under quite different regimes. What happened on Yandiara immediately following the incident in terms of the response from Deep Herd heading out there and we reported at the time there was, you know, many cattle having to be euthanised. What other work went on at the time? Well, we actually undertook some quite significant remedial measures. We looked at installing new bores to provide water. We repaired existing bores. We provided supplementary feed to the animals and, and cattle were dispersed so that they're not all concentrated around single water points. And what did it cost? Um, I don't have that number off the top of my head. But it wouldn't have been a cheap exercise. No, I wouldn't have thought it would have been a cheap exercise. No. Um, however, the corporation has been uh, making contributions towards that cost. Will they be required to repay the costs in full? They, I don't think that they'll be repaying the costs in full, but they'll be making a substantial contribution towards the costs that were incurred. Okay. And, and a ballpark figure, we're talking, what, hundreds of thousands of dollars? Oh, yes, hundreds of thousands, yep. Yeah. In, in repayments to the agency, yes. And that's on top of the $50,000 fine that's been imposed through the court? That's, that's correct. Yeah. In conclusion, Bruno, what message does this fine send to the industry about animal welfare standards and the system in this state? I think what, what it sends to the industry and, and the community more broadly is, is a message that we have robust animal welfare legislation in the state and we have regulators who are prepared to act when those standards aren't met 
and take those matters through to the courts and allowing the courts to make an appropriate judgment as to penalty. Bruno, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. The Department of Primary Industry and Regional Development's Executive Director of Operations and Compliance, Bruno Mezzatesta. Keen to get your thoughts on this and the fine, uh, $50,000 fine imposed on the Indigenous Association over the deaths of over 1,000 cattle in the Pilbara back in 2019. What do you make of it? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the text. Mark from Capel says, as a former advocate for Indigenous enterprise, as and and as an Aboriginal man, I agree with Paul Brown. The book needs to be thrown at this gross neglect of these cattle. Industry standards have to be adhered to. Thanks for that, Mark. Uh, this from Brian in Tambalup. Read the cattle deaths on the station fine. It's akin to the left hand fining the right hand. If it had been any other station owner, their permits to run a property would have been revoked. Thank you, Brian. The text is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Twenty two past twelve. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, the head of a new national research project trying to work out how to transition livestock production to a low methane emission future says the biggest challenge is in the northern cattle industry. Phil Verco is a professor of animal science in the School of Agriculture and Environment at UWA. He's the leader of Research Program 2 with the Zero Net Emissions Agricultural CRC, which received $87 million federal government funding just last week. Phil, your aim is to move towards methane-free cattle and sheep. Is that possible? Thanks, Belinda. Look, I think it is. Uh, and, and I think that with all of these things, there'll be a, a process to that transforms from what they currently are towards that, that zero emissions. I'm not sure that we actually have to achieve zero emissions or zero methane emissions from cattle and sheep to achieve zero net emissions. Um, but I, I, I think that we can head towards that target. And if we get towards you know, 40% reduction, then, then we'll actually be well on the way there. Where is the, the biggest problem when you look across Australia, Phil? Like what are some of those hotspot areas that are sort of emitting the most uh, uh, emissions here? The biggest emissions are from the northern uh, cattle industry. So there's 18 million cattle up there, and that's that's probably the major contributor to our emissions from livestock. But the big challenge generally is just extensive grazing systems, full stop, whether they're cattle or sheep. But certainly in, in terms of an emissions profile, that northern beef industry is one that, that will, uh, will, will be the challenge. And why is that? Well, it's just it's such an extensive system. So where you might see animals on a regular basis in a feedlot or a dairy, for example, in the more intensive industries, in the northern beef industry, it's, it's really extensive and, and rangeland settings where producers don't see the animals all that often. And so to deliver effective ways of reducing methane, on a regular basis or however regularly we need to do it in a practical way that's profitable and sustainable, that that is a challenge. And we're, we're sort of going to need 
you know, the very clever scientists, very clever young people and the technology side of that industry as well to, to come together and, and meet that challenge of delivering cost-effective ways to reduce methane emissions. All right. So what, what might be some of those ways when you, when you outline it like that? There are some challenges there. There's effectively three targets that we can use for livestock, to, regardless of whether they're in a, a feedlot or dairy, whether they're intensive or extensive. You can either change the animal, you can change the feed, or you can target the rumen microorganisms that are responsible for the methane emissions. And that doesn't really change depending on which industry you're targeting, but what might be most effective in a particular geography, if you like, or system will change a little bit. And I guess fundamentally, changing the animal through genetics, so selecting animals that reduce less methane, is something that goes whether it's an intensive or an extensive system. But in that extensive north, it is something that we can do. So people already select animals for different traits and we're thinking that methane emission, we know it's heritable, so we know we can select for it. And so we can probably select for lower methane emitting animals in that area. The, the lovely thing about genetics is that it's permanent. The, the, the not, um, it's not that it's not lovely, but, but the fact that the progress is is sort of reasonably slow but permanent means that we can make slow progress in reducing methane emissions over a period of time. So if we want more rapid reduction in methane emissions, we're going to have to do something in addition to that. So on top of improving the genetics, we need to find ways to manipulate the rumen microflora to reduce the methane emissions or really look at what we can feed in the field in some way or the plants that they're consuming. So we know that a lot of the native plants in rangelands actually have anti-methanogenic properties. So can we be cleverer about how we use our native flora in those systems? So there's a number of opportunities. It's sort of a little bit exciting as much as it is daunting because I think there are genuinely good ways to try and approach it. And sorry, to just go on a little bit more, what's really exciting about the CRC is that I think we have the chance to stack some of these things and it's going to be a, a very important part of the program is to look at not just genetics or not just feed or just microbial manipulation, but we want to see how we can most effectively use all of those targets, stack them to get most effect. So it's not going to be just one silver bullet, it's going to be a combination of those three things oh, that you've just outlined. Absolutely, Belinda, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm definitely not a silver bullet person, rightly or wrongly. I just don't, that doesn't sit well with me. And I think that genuinely the, the great uh, opportunity here is to have multiple targets. If we want to make the most rapid progress, still keep people profitable, we, you know, we're not in this game to not have producers you know, maintain or improve their profitability and sustainability. And I just think that in order to do that, we're going to have to hit this problem with at all angles, basically. Well, one other angle that, that's, you know, a possibility, I guess, is a methane tax. Now, New Zealand is, is taking this on. It's one of the first countries to announce this methane tax. And I think it's not, it doesn't really kick in until the end of 2025, that farmers will have to pay for the methane produced by sheep and cattle. Do you think that should also be thrown in the mix here in Australia? I think, I mean, the, the whole point of having a CRC like this is that we've got 
all partners from industry, government, uh, universities, technology, um, working together and communicating to try and figure out exactly what the best pathways and frameworks are for reducing emissions. So whether it's that way or another way, or whether we follow New Zealand or we don't, I think the beauty of this is that we start to get some clarity around exactly what's required in Australia. And that's the beauty of having a collaborative research centre. And, and that is that all of these partners are sitting around the table communicating for a change about what the best pathway forward is. And Phil, just if we look at the timeline then of a progress towards the end goal, where are we sitting today? We, we would like to be carbon neutral by 2040. It's difficult to put that on a timeline in terms of where we're at now to getting there. But one of the key things that we'll be doing in addition to what's already been done in the last few years is is benchmark exactly where we are. Probably one of the critical first critical things that we have to do as a CRC is benchmark not just the livestock production systems, but all parts of the, the programs within the CRC is to benchmark some of these production systems. And one of the things, I guess, and great values of the CRC is that they're going to be demonstration sites. It's a key part of the CRC across geographical regions and different systems. And one of the things, obviously, in each of those key demonstration sites will be about benchmarking so that we can genuinely hand on heart show progress that we make. And how excited are you, Phil? Because, I mean, this was um, – all the pieces were sort of in place for this CRC, but the, the, the dollars weren't there. The federal government dollars weren't there to sort of push it along. So when that news came through, what was your reaction? Well, I I genuinely hope I sound excited, <laughs> Evelyn, because <laughs> I, I, really, I really am. I, maybe I've, I've been too sort of – but no, I, I can't tell you how exciting it is for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited that it's 10 years. So we've finally got sort of long-term investment that gives us opportunities to do you know, the, the, the practical in-field stuff right through to a, a blend of, of blue sky research, which is, is going to be critical to, to help us meet this challenge. So we've got 10 years worth of funding, which is we're, we're sort of out of that three-year, two to three-year cycle of, of sometimes disconnected research to 10 years worth of coordinated research with all parts of the industry involved. That's so exciting to me. Um, I'm also excited because I guess it's a chance to build critical mass of young, clever people. There's going to be at least 50 PhD students, I think, from memory that are supposed to be part of this program over the coming years. And so we're going to deliver uh, and mentor young, critical people for the future who are not only clever scientists, but they'll already be engaged with industry by the time that they've completed their PhD and they'll be real contributors connected with industry to meet the needs of the future. That, to me, is absolutely fundamental. It's very exciting to think that we'll be part of that. Phil, I'm excited for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your joy here on The Country Out today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Belinda. Thanks for the chance. Phil Verko, he's a professor of animal science in the School of Agriculture and Environment 
at the University of Western Australia takes the time to 28 to 1. Jonathan Hopper here with an update from the newsroom. Good afternoon, Belinda. Fire crews battling an emergency level bushfire in Perth Hills are reporting that residential properties have been impacted and at least one house has been lost. The fire started this morning at the intersection of Granites and Richardson Roads in Parkerville. Air tankers are assisting with the emergency response and an evacuation centre has been opened at Brown Park in the eastern suburb of Swanview. A 25-year-old man accused of lighting a number of fires at Mullawa in the Midwest has appeared in court. Jarmaine Patrick Anthony Grant appeared in the Geraldton Magistrates Court via video link from Greneff Prison. He's facing 12 charges of willfully lighting a fire likely to injure or damage. And the federal opposition has slammed a decision by the government not to deploy a warship to the Red Sea. The United States had issued a call to more than 30 countries for ships to be sent to the region amid concerns about Iranian-backed Houthi rebels attacking cargo ships in the busy maritime corridor. Australia will send a small number of defence personnel to help with the broader mission but won't be sending a warship. Thanks, Belinda. Jonathan, thank you for that update. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And earlier in the hour, you heard from Paul Brown, who is the owner of a live export facility, um, Headland Export Depot it is. He was saying that the $50,000 fine imposed on an Indigenous association over the death of over 1,000 cattle in the Pilbara in 2019 makes a mockery of the state's animal welfare system. Uh, we also had Deep Heard on the program and Deep Heard saying that, no, this fine actually sends a really strong message to the industry and the community that if you do have an animal welfare situation on your property, uh, you will be taken to court and there will be penalties imposed. What do you make of it? On the text, 0448 922 This from Robin Busselton. As far as fines are concerned for these Indigenous peoples responsible for these cattle deaths through starvation and thirst, well, fines don't cut it, as the taxpayers will pay these fines anyway. These people responsible should face jail time, according to Rob. And please put your name on these texts, otherwise we won't be reading them. John Hassel, President of WA Farmers, says... I do not know why we pussyfoot around the issue. If this had been an Australian with European descent, then the fines which Paul Brown was talking about would have been imposed. But because it's Aboriginal run, the standards are thrown to the wind. It's time this divisive behaviour by the courts was stopped. We are all equal Australians. Thank you, John. And this from Rex, who says, A similar number of sheep die on a boat and the Labor government wants to shut down a multi-million dollar industry for a few votes. $50,000 is a joke. Where's the equality, says Rex. The text is 0448 922 Still to come, uh, a really good look at the situation, an update on the fires. There are several at emergency level here in Western Australia. Uh, Richard Hudson in the studio to go through that. And the rainfall figures for you in just a moment. Uh, So we'll spend quite a bit of time on the fire situation here in WA. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad is on deck this afternoon. Angeline, let's start in the Southwest Land Division. Uh, We'll go through the details of those fires shortly. But what sort of conditions are the firefighters dealing with this afternoon? 
Good afternoon, Belinda. There's a few things going on at the moment. So expecting um, subtle wind changes uh, this afternoon that may complicate the fire weather conditions. So um, east of Perth for the Parkerville uh, fire that's at emergency level, the wind direction remains more from the east-northeast and it's it's still fairly windy there, expecting winds generally in the in the 30 to 40 kilometers per hour, gusting up to 50 to 60 kilometers per hour. From about 1 p.m., we do expect the winds to ease off slightly and turn more easterly, sort of in the 30 to 40 kilometers per hour. However, this afternoon, we are expecting a, a more of an east to southeasterly surge extend across the fire ground and is going to be fairly gusty. So winds again increasing to 40 kilometers per hour, potentially gusting up to 70 kilometers per hour as that east to southeasterly surge moves across the fire ground. And unfortunately, the southeasterly surge is not expected to weaken at all tonight. It's going to maintain itself throughout the evening and overnight period. We really don't see winds moderating across uh, the Perth Hills until probably uh, mid-morning tomorrow when the winds are expected to ease off fairly significantly, continuing to the afternoon period tomorrow. In terms of weather, um, we're not expecting uh, any precipitation across that fire ground, just some high cloud around. There is a small chance that we may see a northwesterly change across the fire ground in the mid to late afternoon. There's a very slight chance of this happening, about 5%. And if this were to occur, the onset of the east to southeasterly winds would be delayed. If we do see that uh, northwesterly change, um, we may see uh, some paraconvection develop. As I said before, the chance is about 5% or less, so very slight chance, not likely to happen. Now, fires further south uh, through the uh, southwest district uh, for the North Cliff, we have seen some rainfall across uh, these areas uh, uh, this morning. Haven't seen much rainfall, just a couple of millimeters so far. Now, this cloud band that's extending across the Great Southern, the Southwest, and the South Coastal is uh, uh, has got embedded thunderstorms in it. So very isolated at the moment, but they are occurring. And so with these uh, uh, with this rainfall, with the showers, we can expect about one to two millimeters. But if those thunderstorms occur, we can see probably up to six millimeters with any storm that may pass directly over the fire ground. As with the uh, with the North Cliff, the wind direction is going to be fairly static, uh, fresh east to southeasterly winds. However, I do expect those winds um, across across the North Cliff uh, fire ground uh, to be to become lighter overnight. Now, with the, if the thunderstorms do occur anywhere close by the fire ground, we do expect gusty and erratic winds. All right, thank you for going through those details, Angeline. Appreciate that. Let's now uh, look to northern and eastern parts of the state. What sort of conditions are being experienced this afternoon? We saw some really good thunderstorm activity, very gusty thunderstorms uh, across eastern parts of the Kimberley last evening and overnight. So a bit quiet there, quieter there today. If thunderstorms do develop, they're going to be fairly delayed. Um, these thunderstorms are not stopping uh, the heat wave uh, from developing so we're still expecting those heat wave conditions very oppressive temperatures across the northern parts of the state continuing into the weekend uh, however showers and thunderstorms will become a bit more extensive uh, over the next few days extending into the interior so a slight easing of those uh, uh, of those heat wave conditions but we'll still see patches of severe continuing into the weekend and then this afternoon the warnings what have you got 
Um, so we have got fire weather warnings out for multiple districts uh, in the across the western parts of the southwest land division. There is obviously that heat wave warning out, a severe extreme heat wave warning out for the northern districts, and also a marine warning for some of our coastal waters. Ange, thank you so much for those details. Appreciate that. It's 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Richard Hudson in the studio, kicking off with the rainfall figures. Yeah, and I'll scoot through these. The only real region to get any rain was the Kimberley. Most locations got some, so we'll just do 20 and above. Fitzroy Crossing had 21, Kingston Rest 24, Lake Argyle Resort 24, Mount House Airstrip 44, Mount Krause 21, Mount Winifred 24, Nicholson and Mornington Homestead both recorded 20. And in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts, this is till 9am, the highest rainfall total was Manjimup at 3 mils. But uh, a fair bit of uh, activity going on as far as fires are concerned. The bushfire in the Mundaring Shire is still at an emergency warning level. So that's for people bounded by Boyamine Road and Fringe Leaf Drive, Granite Road, Hedges Road and Flora Road in parts of Hovia, Parkerville and Stoneville. So if you're in that area, there is still a danger and you need to act immediately to survive. So there's still a threat to lives and homes. That bushfire is moving in a westerly direction and it's still evidently out of control and unpredictable. So the firefighters are on the scene and aerial support has been sent. There is an evacuation centre that's now open at Brown Park on Salisbury Road in Swan View. Good news for that fire in the Shire of Manjimup, though. It was at an emergency warning level. That's just been downgraded to a watch and act. So that's the one that is in parts of Colcup, Crowia and Mirup. So it's still quite serious, obviously. So there's still a, a threat to lives and homes. Uh, it had broken containment lines. That bushfire is moving in a westerly direction still, and it's not uh, controlled. But it is good news that it has been downgraded by DFAS from an emergency warning to a watch and act. Uh, also good news is our rural reporter Kate Forrester is in Northcliffe uh, where that fire is. And she said uh, just a short while ago it was raining and it was cold. And that's uh, the two nice conditions you want when you're fighting fires. Um, they're doing backfire, uh, backburning operations in that area as well. Uh, also in the Shire of Manjimup, there's another watching act in place. Um, so there's a few fires going on in that area. And the other bushfire in the Shire of 2J, which we have been talking about yesterday and today, uh, that has just been downgraded from a watch and act to an advice level. So that's even better news. There are other fires burning in WA at the moment. They're also at an advice level. But if you need the latest on any of those, please go to the Emergency WA website. So in a search engine, all you have to do is put in Emergency and WA and it takes you straight to the most important ones, the ones that are at the most severe level at the very top. That also gives you all the details for road closures, updates, changes, and most importantly, advice if you are in that area or you know someone in that area. And also, just a quick reminder, this is after the fire that was around the Lancelin area. Please don't be a dill. Don't fly a drone or a model aircraft or a multi-rotor near bushfires. Uh, it's not needed and uh, it does actually pose a major safety risk to the people who are trying to fight those fires for you. 
Uh, that's because it actually forces aircraft to be grounded. So please just don't put any drones near them. There are a few harvest bans in place today. So this is harvest and vehicle movement bans. And this is for the city of Armidale, Chittering, Kalamunda, city of Mandurah, Meriden, Mundaring, Northam, Serpentine, Jarradale, City of Swan and Westonia. So that's uh, all harvesting is banned and the vehicle movement bans as well. If you want more information on that, just get in touch with your shire. And because of the conditions, there are total fire bans in place for uh, all over the place. In the Perth metro region, Armadale, Chittering, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Quinana, Mandurah and Mundaring. Also Rockingham, Serpentine, Jarradale and Swan. For the Goldfields Midlands region, total fire ban in place for Beverley, Bruce Rock, Cunderdon, Dalwallanew, Darren, Gamaling, Kellerberrin, Corder, Meriden, Mount Marshall, Muckenbooden, Narrambeen, Northam, Nungarin, Queriting, Tamman, 2J, Training, Wongan Balladew, Westonia, Walcatcham, Yilgarn and York. And then in the southwest region, total five bands are in place for Bunbury, Capel, Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray and Waruna. So when a total fire band's in place, you can't uh, light any fires, no cooking, camping or outdoor entertainment, no uh, metalwork, hot work, grinding, welding, gas cutting, no off-road use of four-wheel drives, quad bots, etc. And if you need more details on any total fire bands, just uh, do a search for DFES, D-F-E-S, and total fire bands. And if you want to know which places have fire bands in place, you could just got to remember those two words again, emergency and WA, and it's all on there. Thanks, Richard. Quarter to one. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, as you've just heard, lots of fires burning in Western Australia at the moment and the Shire of Victoria Plains, just northeast of Perth, wants the state government to take a close look at the suitability of the trucks currently being used to fight fires in WA. Shire President Pauline Bantock Carr says over the weekend some of them got bogged in sandy terrain while fighting fires near Magumba. Um, we had a, a earth moving company on site that helped us tow out some of the heavier vehicles and there was a lot of teamwork between the individual units pulling each other out of the little situations that they got stuck into. It's dealing at night, you're dealing with vegetation as well and in the heat of the moment of the fire, everyone's trying to get the fire out but safety is the number one concern and um, yeah, I think everyone did a great job to look after each other. We've got a, a fire truck, that's our Magumba Gillingara fire truck, which we've got to the point of just saying, look, we're not taking it out in this sandy country. You can deflate your tyres, you can do all you want, but they're just not made for that sort of sort of area. So we have a high reliance on our volunteers and they're their private units, their own vehicles that they set up to be able to not only defend their own properties and their neighbours' properties, but the general community and geez, we're lucky to have that. And really, without our private volunteers, these fires just wouldn't get extinguished. And you use the volunteers' units because they're small? They are. They're lightweight, a um, bit more nimble, not so heavy. Um, yes, they have a, a lower amount of water that they store, um, but they can get into these places. Um, there are trucks out there and, um, you know, our brigade and I'm sure many other brigades in sandy areas have been doing investigations into what would be suitable for a number of years, um, the Magumba Gillingara have been lobbying the higher levels of power and saying, look, we need we need something that's suitable. It has to be fit for purpose, 
we need something that we can take out to these regions. Um, there's quite a few different options that have been bantered around over the years. Um, our brigade has often talked about the Tartra trucks. And look, we at the Shire, we are aware that DFES and the state government are, are going through a bit of a, a project. They've committed to purchasing a couple of 9.6 appliances and they're, they're trialling those throughout the state. But it's still a lengthy process. And I suppose when you've come fresh out of a fire and you realise that this is impacting us right now, we just want everything to happen straight away. And, uh, yeah, might not be achievable, but, geez, we want it. What was that unit that you talked about, a 9.6? What, what's that one? Yeah, a 9.6 appliance. So, look, I don't know all the exact details, but I know they've committed to, um, to trialling those, a couple of those throughout the state. Um, that's been through their PATS, their project team. It, they've basically approved um, to, to trial these. But I have also heard the terminology that they may not be willing to swap them out until our vehicle has reached the end of its useful life. And that's where it really puts the, the shivers up me because, you know, I don't want this delayed any longer. I want our volunteers looked after. I want to be able to get our fires out. And, yeah, if we can do everything at the Shire of Victoria Plains to continue lobbying the good work that DFES and that are doing in, in, in trialling these, let's just get this happening as soon as possible. I guess you can't have a vehicle that's perfect for everything. And, yeah, sure, vehicles need to be used in the appropriate manner and only taken into safe circumstances, but... If the volunteers are just saying, no, we're not going to use that that purpose-built vehicle, that's our fire truck for over half of our area, we're just not going to take it out of the shed because it's going to get bogged, then it's probably not fit for purpose. President of the Shire of Victoria Plains, Pauline Bantock Carr, speaking to Lucinda Jose about problems they've had over the weekend with trucks getting bogged near Magumba. Those fires burned through 650 hectares of country, including pine plantations. They caused minor damage to a chicken farm, including a large shed that thankfully didn't have any birds in it. Ten minutes to one. Well, the Department of Fire and Emergency Services, or DFES, says all regional firefighting appliances are designed for off-road conditions and DFES also provides specialised off-road driver training for optimum performance of heavy vehicles in difficult and sandy terrain. DFES is working with the Shire of Victoria Plains to coordinate training and also assess if some appliances should be relocated between local brigades to better suit their terrain. 10 to 1. Well, Trevor Royce farms at Hawathara, just north of Geraldton. Trevor, you were the bushfire control officer for your region for many years, and in the last few weeks your community has been fighting three or four fires, really big fires. How have your government issue fire trucks fared in the last few weeks? Yeah, there, there is a real problem. Uh, in the sandy country with the the bigger units. Um, the tyres are just not suited for the heavy uh, terrain. Um, now, I know Deepis will come back and say, well, you've got to let your tyres down and that type of thing. But I suppose uh, my big thing is the fact that um, Western Power have the same type of vehicles with bigger tyres or super single tyres and deflators on them. And at the fire uh, last weekend, the areas where they went to replace power poles, I'm battling to get there in my four-wheel drive. Uh, 
How do these deflators um, work then, Trevor? What do they do? I'm not an expert on that, but they, they let them down automatically, whereas uh, Deepest will tell us with the other ones we've got to stop and put um, a, a, a manual deflators on them. Oh. Um, so you can let the tyres um, down from inside the cab. Is that what you can do with the deflators? I'm not going to be, uh, be an expert on that, but I believe that's what happens. And that's what so you would like to have? Is that the, is that the solution here? Yeah, think? I'd, I'd just like to see them on bigger tyres. And the argument I've had for the uh, last 20 years with these vehicles is that it, uh, it, it's not under, um, you're not covered by warranty or some other reason. But how come Western Power have got the same vehicles and go anywhere with them? Right. That's that's my question. And, and um, what's been the response from DFES? Oh, just a, a blank wall. No, you can't put a bigger tyres on them. Some brigades, I believe, um, put bigger tyres on them and they were told to take them off. Good to get your thoughts, Trevor. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Trevor Royce, who farms just north of Geraldton. This is The Country Hour, eight minutes to one. Well, fighting fires in sandy soils is also a challenge for firefighters in the Dandarigan Shire. Chief Bushfire Control Officer Andrew Kenny says they were lucky enough to secure private funding to get hold of more suitable firefighting vehicles that he thinks are better than government-supplied trucks, which often end up as expensive water carts. So some of the sort of larger appliances which carry a bit of water, the trucks, they, they um, have real issues with the sand and then it... You know, it adds, if they're getting bogged, it adds to the safety of the crew within that vehicle and other vehicles that might be trying to get down the similar track. So uh, we do have to be careful uh, where we send these larger vehicles for sure. So that's some of the DFES supplied fire vehicles. You can't send them? Uh, some of them, yeah. Unfortunately, some of them, you know, they're, they're fit for purpose in um, a country that the the ground is firm and they've got good um, trafficability, but certainly in the sand, we've really got to consider how we utilise these vehicles. And unfortunately, sometimes all they end up becoming is sort of glorified uh, water carters, unfortunately, and the smaller vehicles will often go to them and reload. But given all the firefighting appliances they've got on board, it's sort of a bit of a waste of a resource to some extent. In the Shire of Dandarigan, you also have a privately owned Tatra, which uh, is a pretty impressive looking thing. I was just watching a video of it dragging a bogged grader out of a problem that it was in. How did you happen to have that vehicle? How did it come to be in the Dandarigan Shire? Uh, I guess we've had some private funding, which we've been extremely grateful for, to um, initiate the project. And the Shire is extremely supportive and proactive to firefighting within its region. So they've sort of taken it on the board as well. So it's a, it's a good collaboration. And whenever that vehicle turns up, it certainly gives the firefighters on the ground some confidence that, you know, the fire is um, going to be controlled at some stage because it's a huge asset to the uh, resources we've got available. Now, that's a six-wheel drive vehicle, is it? Uh, that's correct, Joe. It's a six-wheel drive and it carries 9,000 litres of water. It, it will go where the smaller uh, one-tonne utility vehicles go, so it's quite amazing how well it goes through the sand. It's got tyres that inflate and deflate. Uh, I was at a fire in March this year and the grader got bogged and the, we relied on the Tatra to pull the grader out of the fire ground uh, so it could get better, back on a better running surface. So its capabilities are quite amazing, what it can do. So, yeah. It, we're very fortunate, and I know we're probably the envy of other shires around uh, having uh, the, a vehicle like that um, at our beck and call. It must have an incredible amount of power to be able to carry 
9,000 litres plus all the equipment. That's a lot of weight. Uh, I think it's, it's, yeah, 22,000 gross or something. So it is quite amazing a vehicle of that weight can uh, get over the the sandier soils where other vehicles struggle. So it's... uh, a very well designed vehicle. Mm, yeah. mm. When you look at the, the cost of it versus the cost of uh, the current fleet of DFS trucks, is it a cost barrier? Do you think to for, to to switch over to everyone being in having those Tatra vehicles rather than the, the current option? Well, I know DFS are working in this space currently, and they're trying to find uh, solutions. Obviously, um, some of the some of the vehicles' capabilities in sand. And their guidelines and protocols mean that the normal truck, after you put all the DFS uh, required um, equipment on it, you know, they blow out to a similar similar amount, or close to three quarters of a million dollars. I wouldn't know the exact figure, but that's what the Tatra cost originally, uh, ready to go uh, to the fire ground. So a lot of the other trucks probably get to a similar amount by the time you put all the other equi- DFS equipment on board. But yeah, I know I know they're working hard in the space to try and. Uh, close the gap so to speak mm-hmm. and you've had that tatra for a while now so you've well and truly tested it out and so far it's working okay yeah we've had it uh, since 2019 initially um, we all thought because it was a truck it was going to get bogged as well so it'd have that um, achilles heel but um, it's going you know the further it's gone uh, the more we keep trying to ring and say can you please bring the tatra because this fire needs uh, the, ne- the next level up in uh, firefighting um, equipment. Uh, it's got a cannon, like a water cannon on it, which pours out a thousand litres a minute or something. And with um, with nine thousand litres, you can actually have the cannon running for a while. But on a two thousand litre um, similar vehicle, the, the water's gone in a hurry. So you know that's that's one of the bonuses. Really, is obviously the the volume of water it carries, as well as the um, issue of with it not getting bogged anywhere. Andrew Kenny from the Shire of Dandarigan speaking to Joe Prendergast. On the text, Ben agrees. He says, no current DFS truck-based appliances are fit-for-purpose off-road. The only fit-for-purpose trucks in the field currently are privately owned Tatra 9.6 configuration trucks. The DFS spec is very poor value for money and a very poor performers off-road. Thank you for that, Ben. Two minutes to one. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for the world today. Cape York now bracing for flooding as residents across far north Queensland spend the days before Christmas mopping up. A new CSIRO report shows renewable energy is likely to be cheaper than nuclear power for years to come. And the end of an era. Tributes flow for the flamboyant Italian-Australian furniture salesman and Melbourne icon Franco Cozzo. And I should just add, one of the downsides of those Tatra trucks apparently is just how expensive they are. It is a minute and a half away from the news at one o'clock. Now, Billabong Gold has just been fined a little over $550,000 after two workers were seriously injured in an accident at the company's underground plutonic gold mine, which is about 300 kilometres northeast of Mekathara in WA's Midwest region. It was in April 2020 when the two workers were struck by tooling that ejected under pressure from a hydraulic ram. In the Carnarvon Magistrates Court yesterday, Billabong Gold pleaded guilty to being an employer that caused serious Serious harm to an employee. The two men were working to change the bucket on a loader, which required them to insert two large pins to connect the bucket to the loader's frame. The tooling configuration included a porter power hydraulic ram. The tooling struck both men, with one suffering serious facial fractures, 
and the other receiving a laceration to the forehead. Acting WorkSafe Commissioner Sally North says the men were lucky because the incident could have been fatal. Good to catch up with you today. I'm off for a couple of weeks, so I will see you on the other side of that. It is news time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.